You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When people think of the civil rights movement, the first person who likely comes to mind is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that's understandable, right? He is the iconic figurehead and the stirring orator who led and galvanized the movement until his assassination. He lives on through his memory as the embodiment of the vision and the cornerstone of the March on Washington. But Dr. King was situated in a network of people who filled out that movement. John Lewis, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, They worked with Dr. King on organizing. Fred Shuttlesworth worked with Dr. King on leading the Birmingham movement. Diane Nash got college students involved. Bob Moses worked with Dr. King on developing nonviolent strategy for the movement. Dr. King was the figurehead, but it was a whole community that worked together to grow that movement. Now, You may or may not have heard of many of the names that that lie behind the civil rights movement. You may or may not know them. They may or may not be remembered in the history books. But their work was important. Their work mattered. And the movement would have never grown without these partners and the many others whose Names were lost to the history books. When people think of the church, it's right that the first person that comes to mind is Jesus Christ. It's understandable. It's the way it ought to be. Because Jesus is the head of the church. He is the savior of the church who galvanizes and leads his community through his death to atone for our sins. And as the resurrected Lord, he also lives on as the embodiment of the vision, the cornerstone by which the kingdom is advanced. But the Lord has gathered to himself a network of people who fill out his community and advance his kingdom. Think about it. Think about it. The apostles worked with Christ on establishing and crystallizing the faith of the church. People like Lydia and Priscilla hospitably opened their homes to house the church in its very beginnings. Evangelists worked with Christ on spreading the gospel to gather the church. People like Athanasius and Augustine, Aquinas and Calvin worked with Christ on developing the theological understanding of the church. And today, elders, deacons, pastors, children's ministry volunteers, musicians, and all of the other members of God's church work together to build up the church in love and to make it work according to God's design. Now, we haven't heard of most of their names, but their work is important, critical, crucial to the growth of the church. And the church never would have grown without the participation of each member of his body 
in the work. So let me ask you a question this morning. When you think about the growth of the church, particularly the growth of this church, is your first question, I wonder what the leaders and the staff are cooking up to grow this church? Or is your first question, what is my responsibility in participating for that end? When you think of growth, do you think of it as something that is in the court of church leadership? Or the the employees of the church? Or do you think of it as something that you really matter for? Something that your gifts are real contributions for? How do you think about the growth of the church? If you haven't been with us, we have been walking through a series on what the scriptures teach about the church. Its nature, its design, its purpose. God's goals for the church. God's word about the church. The fancy theological word for this is ecclesiology which comes from the Greek word for the church, ecclesia. How are we as Christians to understand the church? And we began to identify some of the challenges that we face when it comes to our thinking around the church. A lot of it has to do with us being honest about the failures and the faults of the church, the weaknesses of the church, but also recognizing many of the beauties and the developments and the contributions that the church has made to the world. But more importantly, as we sit in our cultural context, we live in a cultural moment that is very high on individualism. It's very high on the importance and the centrality of the individual. And what's interesting, you may or may not know, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor uh, tells the story of how the church gave the gift to the world of respect for the individual. It used to be the case in ancient cultures that the tall blade of grass got cut, that the the, the individual got absorbed into the clan or into the community, and there was very little room for the importance of the individual. But when the church came along with its understanding of the value of the human person made as the image of God, the importance of the individual began to emerge. But what Charles Taylor also notes that in our modern secular context, what has happened is that individualism that was given to the culture by the church has now been cut off from any of its theological import or grounding. And so what we're left with is a sort of destructive individualism, a, a, a pendulum swing so hard on the emphasis on the individual That it is really causing the fabric of our our society and our culture to be torn. And this is particularly the case in the church. We've wrestled through some of the challenges of understanding the church. People have been hurt by the church. And we have to reckon with all of these different nuances as we consider what it is that the scriptures teach about the church. But we're continuing through this series today and we're going to talk about the growth of the church from our passage today. And we're going to approach this text through two points where we see every member ministry and every member charity. These are our two points for this morning. Every member ministry and every member charity. So let's look at our first point. What does this passage have to say about the growth of the church? This passage holds out a vision of every member ministry. You'll find this in verses 7 through 14. Now, if you walk into a Christian bookstore these days, which I don't know why you would, but if you walk into a Christian bookstore these days, you're going to get disappointed. Uh, But one of the things that you will quickly recognize 
If you go into uh, the section on, on, on the church or, or pastoral ministry, as some are prone to do, is that there is so much literature on church growth strategy. And even when you plant a church, you are bombarded with this. I was, when we planted Mosaic six years ago, you swim through this material. It was a movement that started in the 80s and 90s. This is how you grow a church. And there are all of these strategies and tactics and, and marketing and, and, and structural changes you can make to the church and doing demographics and all that. Like, look, there are all of these tactics that are given. And the suggestion is if you check these boxes, then you're going to be the pastor of the next megachurch. It's this idea that you can manipulate the growth of the church. And it is tempting. It's, it's a draw. It's a lure to lean into the church growth strategy material and forget what it is that God has given us in terms of his vision for church growth strategy. And that's what we get in this text. We see God's church growth strategy. The Apostle Paul has given it to us. And it begins with the free gifts that Christ distributes to his people. Now, think about the arc of it. Last week, we talked about the unity of the church. The week before that, we talked about the diversity of the church. So look at the way that Paul's argument is developing through Ephesians. He talks about the diversity of the church, the way we should value it and cherish it and nurture it. Then he talks about the unity of the church, that even all of that diversity, much like that window back behind at the back of the sanctuary, that stained glass window. If you look at the discrete parts, they're different colors. They're different shapes. They're different sizes. They're all broken, but they're held together by a unifying element. Which is, remember, where we get our name from, Grace Mosaic, that grace holds the various broken shapes, pieces of different color sizes and ethnicities and, and generations together. That diversity is to issue in a unity, and in the passage for today, it leads to maturity. From diversity to unity to maturity. And we see that that diversity that is described in this text... It's the diversity of gifts that are collected in the church. And we begin with seeing this free distribution of gifts to the people of God. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. We see that nobody in the church, no, not you, not you, not you, not you. Nobody in Christ's church has missed out on the generosity of Jesus in the distribution of his gifts. No one has missed out. We are working with Christ's measurement, with his bounty. This is the language that's used here. And every single one of us has been loaded up for a reason. For a reason. And Paul's working through this and he says, listen, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about how he founds his statement. Paul wants us to think about something. He's grounding this statement by quoting scripture. Okay? He says, that Christ has distributed his gifts to each and every one of his people. And you know how I know that? Let me quote Psalm 68 for you. And he quotes Psalm 68. And it says, he says, therefore, it says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, here's the deal. In this cultural context, when a conquering king defeated an enemy, one of the common practices in that day and age was there would be a distribution of gifts and favors to all of the people of his kingdom. After he ascended over his enemies, after he quelled 
the, the, the rebellion of his enemies or he overtook his enemies, he would then distribute gifts to his people. And Paul is writing on that language and he's saying this text is actually fulfilled in Jesus. Because after he defeated sin, death, the devil, after he, after he defeated the powers, the unseen powers of this age. By the way, you have a shallow view of evil if you can't, if you can't say that humanity sometimes is grasping at how there is such deep evil. Like mere humanity does not really get after all of it. That's a thin account of evil. It's one of the, and there are many atheist philosophers who would, who would suggest as much. They just wouldn't feel comfortable grounding that in any kind of um, theological vantage point, obviously. That the evil that we experience sometimes, that some of you who work for institutions like International Justice Mission, your travels around the world, you have seen evil that, is, that defies human explanation. It seems like it is so far beyond just mere human evil. What the text is telling us is that Jesus has defeated these powers and now he has distributed his gifts to his people. There's an allusion here to Pentecost, to the outpouring of God's spirit. That's it. He has gifted us. And the explanation is that the one who descended to the earth has ascended and he has poured out his spirit. And now we are loaded with gifts for the mission. But pay attention. Look at verse 11 at the gifts that Christ gives. Now, listen, in other places, you will see there are gifts that are given to the church. And they're described almost as like abilities, as qualities. But in this text, look at verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. And this is a representative list. It's not a comprehensive list. But do you see that the gifts that God has given are people? That the person sitting in the pew next to you is a gift to you from God. It's one of the few times you can get away with it when people say, you think you're God's gift. And you say, I am actually. (laughs) But don't press that too much. All right. No, it's it's, Paul is shaping the way that we're supposed to perceive one another and the way that we're supposed to receive one another. We should receive one another as a gift. You're you're a gift to me and I'm a gift to you and y'all are a gift to one another. This is what Paul is saying. We are gifts. They're not just abilities. The gifts are also people. And this has got to register for us if our relationships with one another are going to flourish and if our, our co-working together is really going to thrive. Now, here's another important point. You see in this text that leadership in the church, which also involves institutional structure, is a gift, according to Paul. It's a gift. This is what he's naming here. These gifts bleed in with offices in the church and the structure and the institutional dynamic of the church is a gift. Paul says, remember, this is a representative list. It's not it's not exhaustive, but it's representative. Paul here highlights proclamation and teaching gifts in these lists because everything else flows from a right understanding of the faith. But this never diminishes the value and importance of the other gifts in the church. 
But look at how he continues on. Why does Christ give leadership in the church? Why does Christ distribute gifts in the church to his leaders and to others? He begins with the leaders. The role of these leaders, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Do you see the relationship here? Do you see it? He doesn't give leadership to do all the ministry while the rest of the body is sidelined. And some traditions, that's the way it feels. And if you're, you're just a, a member of the church, you feel like just a member. You feel like you're put on the sidelines and you want to be in the game, but you feel like ministry's for the professionals. I don't, I don't think that that's what this text allows for. But also, this text is not allowing us to sit on the sidelines because, you know, I'm not really interested in that kind of thing and work is busy and I, you know, I got excuses just like everybody else. You know, like this is it's it's showing us this relationship between church leadership and church membership where in its best iteration, in its best picturing, the members of the church feel buoyed up. They feel nourished. They feel strengthened. They feel encouraged and they jump in on the work of the ministry. And it is together that the leadership and the membership of the church participate in seeing the growth of the church. And there are a few things that have to be in place here. One, leadership has to care for membership and membership has to receive leadership. And it's going to get into later down in the passage, some of the the dynamics of that interaction. But the first thing you just need to see is that the leadership of the church is given to build up the church. The leadership strengthens and supports the multitude of other gifts in the church. And it's in this way that the body's built. Paul envisions a synergy. Okay. And do you see the goal in verse 13? Look at verse 13. This is the goal. Unity of faith. Knowledge of the Son of God, maturity as gauged by Christ and his fullness. We don't get to define what that maturity and unity and healthiness looks like. Jesus defines that. We look to him and don't miss the additional purpose of each member playing their part in verse 14. Look at verse 14 so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This, I think, speaks powerfully in a day and age where we are tempted out of a desire to contextualize our faith. We're tempted to be deceived, to lean into things that are absolutely categorically running across the grain of the historic Christian faith. And what the apostle categorizes that in this passage he, he categorizes that as immaturity, as being like children tossed to and fro, children who aren't mature enough to understand or know anything yet. And he says that the reason why God gives leadership to support and nurture membership is not only to seek the unity of the church and the knowledge of Jesus, but it's a protective for one another so that we don't fall off the horse to either side. It's in the text, and so we must be mindful of it. So if you had to ask the question, what might be the schemes today or the errors that we would be tempted to fall into today, what would you put on that list? What would you put on that list? 
I think there's a lot of stuff we could put on that list, especially as American Western Christians. But one of the ways that we are aided in in filling out that list, the things we got to be careful of, is by listening to the voice of the global and historic church. Because I think that right at the top of this list, you could put a lot of things that are really bleeding into and choking our faith, like nationalism. Nationalism, where there is a conflation of American culture with Christianity. And it's hard to get the two apart. And the patriotism at times chokes out discipleship, following Jesus. I think that's a danger in the West. Materialism is a danger for us. That we can sweep that in and without a grid where we consider the global picture and the historic picture of the church, we will find ourselves embracing things that we ought to be repenting of. Obviously, when we talk about sexuality, I think this is another situation. Because of the way in which the church has failed when it comes to relationships and marriage and and what men are doing with respect to women, how they treat them, whether treating them with honor or disrespecting them, whether in private on their screens or in public, catcalling, all this kind of stuff in which women are devalued. That sexuality brokenness, that brokenness of sexuality then bleeds into other ways in which the church is becoming confused as it pertains to understanding sexuality. What are we going to... What are we going to do with this list? We could keep adding to it. The apostle says we have a responsibility to one another to build one another up, to challenge one another. He's eventually going to get down into this text and he's going to call us to speak the truth in love with one another. Notice in this picture, when he talks about children as a multitude, That's the picture of immaturity. But when he speaks about maturity, he talks about the one mature new humanity. You see, what Paul is suggesting is that you cannot get maturity without community. If you are praying for maturity, if you're praying for growth, then you're praying for deeper community. And the answer to your prayer may come to you in the form of hearing things that you don't want to hear. And being told things that really grate you. And I understand it because guess what? Leadership is not exempt from that. And just because you've been called to an office doesn't mean you have deep need to turn from your sin and repent and grow. But it's for the benefit of the body. It's for the strengthening and the unity of the body. I like how Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it. You know, sometimes, you know, one of the things that I teach in my preaching class at the seminary is when you have to say a hard word, sometimes it's easier to let someone else say it for you. So let me let Dietrich Bonhoeffer say it for you. If you don't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyr in fighting against the Nazis in in the church in Germany. And he learned his theology on the ground in the context of suffering. And he also learned uh, by engaging with the black church in Harlem when he took a visit to the United States. But fascinating life. You should read his biography by Charles Marsh, not Eric Metaxas, Charles Marsh. It's really good. Um, But this is what he says to this effect. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. 
Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm going to say that one more time. (laughs) Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sins. If I just let you go off the cliff. And nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. You're like, wait a minute. Really? Is that the way it's supposed to work in the church? I want you to think about it like this. What would you do if you saw one of the children of our church aimlessly wandering toward a busy highway? What would you do? Um, Johnny, I really think that you should not do that. You would scream, wouldn't you? You would scream. You would, there, there, there would be emphasis because you see the danger. And many times we don't get in one another's lives and speak the hard words because we don't perceive the danger. But Paul is calling us to, to be those who truth in love. Those who love enough to get into the awkward moments. To say the things that are hard to say. To say the things that might create a little bit of community upheaval. To get into the mix with one another and to hold one another to the beauty of this story. It's not like a police officer policing people in the way that we typically negatively think of that. It's, it's, it's mutual nurturing. It's bringing one another along to live into the story. It's encouraging one another like actors in a scene. We can live into this better. We can be more authentic characters. It's not about policing one another, although there are times where it will feel like you're being policed. And you know what? We have police for a good reason. Thank you, Duncan. Um, You know what I'm saying? Okay. Look, when we think about this passage, we always want to get to the gospel, right? We want to get to the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's Here's the good news. You need to hear the bad news first. The bad news is that we all either refuse to use our gifts or we only ever use our gifts for ourselves, for our own advancement, for the climbing of our career. We, 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 we keep all of our gifts to ourselves. And that's the bad news about us. That shows a selfishness and an, and an inward evil that God doesn't have imagined for his church. That's the bad news about us. And furthermore, we've often refused or neglected the gifts of others or tried to operate without letting everyone play their role. Now, each of us can speak about that, right? I I feel that at times. Let me be your pastor. Let me lead you, please. Each of us has a role to play. And your role may not be teacher. Your role may not be shepherd. But you have another important role and I need to receive your role. See, there's a way that we can fall into error where there is constantly antagonism with leadership because of suspicion. Now, the beautiful picture that's supposed to emerge is that leadership is so trusted because they are so invested and involved with their with their people under their care that there is a there is an earned trust and love and mutuality over time. But then there's a way in which sometimes church leadership and church folk can hog all the work. For fear that people who aren't trained, we're going to screw it up. You see, we, we got to let go of both of those are errors. We're to receive the gifts of one another with delight, with gratitude. I'm glad that you have that gift. 
Let me let you do that. Let me support you in that. Let me encourage you in that. And you're glad about their gifts and they're glad about their gifts. And there's something beautiful in that in that synergy. We often neglect those gifts. And a lot of times we only channel our gifts through our work or our vocations. And we don't share that in the community of faith. You are needed. Your work is important. This has a tremendous impact on the growth of the church. And it also inadvertently exposes the church to false teaching, according to this passage, and false thinking. That's the bad news. What's the good news? The good news is about how Christ pours his gifts on us. Before you ever get to the place where you will share your gifts with others, you have to be someone who knows that you have been a recipient of the lavish gifts of Jesus in the gospel. You have received the gift of his love. You have received the gift of his faithfulness. You've received the gift of his promises. You've received the gift of his patience and long suffering with you. You have received the gift of adoption. You have received the gift of an inheritance that is unspoiled, that's imperishable and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You have received immeasurable, innumerable, inestimable gifts in Jesus. And when you see how he's poured out his his gifts on you, well, then you want to be like him. Do you want to follow Jesus? Then you'll be the kind of person who takes all the gifts that you have and you use them to bless his church like he blesses his church. Remember, we started this series by saying that the goal of the scriptures is that you would love the church like Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church through her flaws. Jesus loves the church through failure. Jesus loves the church in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Jesus isn't given up on the church. Jesus will purify the church. And in that same way, we are to view the church. Not in a sentimentalism that is unable to identify wrongs and need for the church to repent and repair things that it is broken. But with a hope-filled view of what the church shall be. Christ was delighted to give his gifts, so we should be delighted to share our gifts. Which leads to every member charity. Paul gives the alternative to falling in, to being duped. Verses 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who's the head. Into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped... When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you see it here? We will only be built up in love if we speak the truth in love. And this imagery of the stones being fitted together is is sort of echoed again here from Ephesians 2. The stones being built together, all of the, the body ligaments, the parts held together. And you know what's an interesting fact is that back in the day, they didn't have mortar when they were building buildings. Today, if you look at the brick in the wall right here, there's a there's a layer that holds those things together. Back then, they didn't have mortar. So they had to chisel and cut the stones very specifically to get them to fit together. And so the rub of community is the chiseling that makes us fit together. It's a very pertinent image. Is your neighbor grating you or is it needling you? Is it chiseling you? Good. Because that's what's making us fit together. It's the work of the craftsman, Jesus, by his spirit. This is the picture here. The apostle is not calling his readers 
to truthfulness in general or speaking honestly with one another merely. He's talking about the chief truth, the gospel. Speaking the truth in love. And you know what the gospel says? You're far worse than you ever imagined. You're more broken than you ever knew, but you're far more loved than you ever dreamed. And nothing about your brokenness is going to change that. Nothing about your failure is going to change that. The surest sign that God will never stop loving you is that he never began. His love is eternal. His love has no beginning nor end because his love is as he is. And that's good news. That's good news for us this morning. But a word about speaking this truth, this gospel into one another's lives. We're going to have to tell one another we're in error. And we're going to have to tell one another that even in our error, we are loved. And that love calls to change. If we see people who are out of accord with our story, we got to love one another. That, that's what we're responsible to do in the community of faith. But listen to this word by John Stott. He says, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. And love becomes soft if it's not strengthened by truth. Truth in love. Let me close by saying this. Whether by setting the communion table. Thank you, Anne. Or welcoming newcomers or taking a meal to someone in need or offering hospitality in your home. Each and every one of you has an important role to play in the growth of the church, particularly this church. If you're a member, the history books may never remember your name. They may never count you, but the Lord knows your name and he counts you. He, he acknowledges your contributions. He regards your service as a delight. And I want to encourage all of you to prioritize and press into the upbuilding of the church through the use of your gifts. Why? Why is every member ministry so important? Because Christ sustains in every member ministry. He ministers to each and every one of us as if there were only one of us. And when you know that love and that ministry, it leads you to the kind of service that will beautify and grow and unify the church. So action item. Are you on a ministry team? Member of Grace Mosaic? If not, a concrete way to walk in response to this text is to join one. Even if you're not a member and you've been around this community for a while, I want to invite you to participate. I want to invite you. This is one of the ways that you will learn what the church is, what this particular church is, and you will grow in the faith. This is how we're going to grow together in love. Join a ministry team. Look for opportunities. Repent of the selfishness that has caused you to turn your gifts in on your own personal uses exclusively. But also hear the encouragement as you go. If you see this is in your life by God's grace, be encouraged. He's at work in you and he's working through you. And I could name lots of you that I just am so grateful and so encouraged by your participation in the life of this church and in its ministry. Just by showing up, being present, giving yourselves, because this is what love looks like. And this is how love will be intelligible in our neighborhood. So let's lean into this and receive this for the growth of the church. Let's pray. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.